Ferments are interesting enough, they're new flavours you're developing anyway, but then add natives to that and you've got natives and ferments and then put a bit of Japanese at it and you're actually doing things that have never been done before. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Being born into a long line of hospitality professionals almost makes your career choice somewhat inevitable. As much as some may try, the lure of food, wine and forming amazing connections with people is often too strong to ignore. Rowan Park is the executive chef of Old Young's Kitchen in Western Australia. Rowan, how are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm good. It's good to have you on the show. Uh, you've uh, got a family that's been in the in the food game, and and here you are as well. Was was sort of that always on the cards for you? Inevitable is the word you use. No, it wasn't on the cards. I went into it kicking and screaming, Huck. Um, to be really honest, um, I did my school years. I scored all over the place, which sort of came around full circle later, and we'll get to that. But I did my school years. I did. Three years in the Kimberley in Kununurra, three years in the Kimberley in Broome, um, and a few years down in the southwest of Australia. Uh, the rest of it was in Perth. So got to move around a lot. But my mum was a food scientist. Um, my mum's mum's, rest in peace, my grandma, she's, uh, she was a cooking lecturer for many years. And her father, so my great-grandfather, was a pastry chef. So, that, I mean... In that alone, the the literature and some of the stuff I've got I've got Mooleys from 1930, tongue presses and flour mills from the 30s, and all of his literature um, is priceless. I mean, I, I I can never even read it all. I didn't even know they could print color pictures in the 1930s. Let alone some of the pictures they've got of the cakes and stuff he used to make in these books. Um, that was back when they were they were bakers and confectioners. They were called. Um, that was totally different to chefing. But uh, look, I, I tried as hard as I could to stay out of it. I, I did all of the top tier of schooling to be a, an engineer, um, but I'm far too creative for that. So I spent a few years, um, you know, having some fun in my 20s and then had, had a flick at viticulture. I was, uh, I was earning 120 grand in mining um, and it's taken me, taken me about <laughs> 25 years to catch back up to that. <laughs> but I was earning 120 grand as a 21-year-old in mining. And you know what I was, my, my girlfriend at the time, we were going, that was back in, geez, 2004. We were going out to degustations at restaurants. And, um, Perth people will know them like Fraser's and Gala. Um, back, back when they were first starting and no one knew what a dego was, um, Spending, uh, spending all my money on that and Le Creuset pans and Woolstoff knives and really it's just it was still just sort of simmering away in the background but I didn't realise it um, and then I had a, quite a bad injury in the mines so I got out and um, living in the south southwest at that point I got into viticulture um, not as a viticulturalist but obviously just working around all of the wineries doing the pruning and the, the uh, canopy management and such um, and just being in these these epic wineries like Lewin and Willstone, Main and all these places working on the vines and I sort of just started niggling away at me like, geez, I'm in this amazing area. Why don't I try and get into it? So, I mean, I guess I went, I called Three Oceans Winery. Um, the guy that gave me my first chance, Richard Burns, shout out. Um, he 
I called him and said, look, I'm happy to come and be your kitchen hand. I'll peel potatoes. I'll do whatever you need. What you think about when you see all the old chef movies and stuff is, you know, you're going to be peeling potatoes and burning yourself. And, yeah, just worked my way up from there. And the rest was history, as they say, I guess. So, yeah. Well, I want to explore sort of some of your influences and where you've worked along the way, but this family history is fascinating. Um, tell us a little bit about it. What what was it like sort of when you've reached back and explored sort of your family's history? What were some of the things you found? Oh, I mean, I really, I'm really glad you asked. I mean, growing up, it just seemed normal for me, but every Christmas, every Christmas, my grandfather, also rest in peace, would he'd print out on the typewriter an individualised menu for everyone with their name written in his calligraphy, with their name written in his calligraphy, like a set menu. And I mean, I shit you not, forgive my French, but I, it was just normal to me back then as a four-year-old, as a five-year-old, my, my earliest memories of this and saying, what does horse do? What does this mean? And he says, says hors d'oeuvres, hors d'oeuvres, you know, um, then, then aperitifs and then first course and then second course and then third course. Um, it was he he hand wrote a tasting menu in the 80s for all of the family every single year and he did it for his for the anniversary the kids all got to go away and stay with their friends or or they got locked in their rooms but he did that for my parents um and their well my mum and her siblings they did that for their anniversary every year as well um and that's partially because my grandfather was very high in the Freemasons, all right? So the people think a lot about the Freemasons, that they're very all creepy and stuff, but they're a bunch of businessmen that cook for each other once a month. They take turns cooking and they have a big dinner party. I mean, that's as much as I'm allowed to know anyway. But without without him being in the culinary world, he still they still had dinner parties and he knew about the tuxedo and the format of a dining of a tasting menu. And my grandmother had all of the sort of the nuts and the bolts in the cooking and the making it actually happen. So that was just normal to me. I just grew up around it. And then it only, it was only in my twenties. And when I sort of got there, it's like, wow, okay. So that hearing about degustations and all of my friends in the Southwest were working at all these wineries, Lewin Estate, Cape Lodge, Willstone, Maine, all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah. It, it all everything's full circle what sort of uh, feasts or dishes do you remember from from these sort of celebrations from when you were young <laughs> I mean it sounds plain Jane but I, I, I still look back with fondness is um, he'd always have pigs in blankets sort of thing you know devils on horseback um, and but then we'd roll into the salmon with the capers and the lemon and the iceberg lettuce and a, and a whole egg mayonnaise. Um, just really straightforward stuff. And then moving on to some turkeys and hams. Um, there's always a turkey and a ham. Um, there's always sparkling burgundy. Uh, <laughs> I've known sparkling burgundy since I was very young. Um, and then rolling into the brandy sauce on the Christmas pudding. Uh, everything had to be perfect and everything was a ritual. And... Without knowing, that was Escoffier's brigade system being drilled into me as a toddler. <laughs> you mentioned your time uh, in the mines there and earning an incredible amount of money for for a young person. But but you had an injury. Tell us about that period of time. Was that difficult? That transition, you know, not only the injury but the, a reduced income and a different way, or a different path forward. A hundred percent, Huck. I mean. 
I was earning a lot of money, but I was sitting in front of 14 computer screens and two radios telling people to turn belts on and motors off and start up the mill and get the sparkies in. Um, it was, it was mind numbingly boring. I could have built a couple of houses and sat there, um, quite comfortably as quite a wealthy man at the moment if I'd stuck with it, but without knowing at the time how, how without knowing I was a creative, um, it just didn't, nothing fed my passion and I didn't know what my passion was. Um, I was still below the surface. So then um, having the injury, I got quite a large payout, um, but I didn't want to go back to the mines anymore. It was like a second chance. It was, it was, it was something I could do to build myself up and that helped fund, I guess, in a small way, my entry into the industry. Um, but I moved very fast up from that kitchen hand job. I was on the ladder within a month. Um, within a year, I was ready to move on. I was first year apprentice and the senior sous chef at the same time at Flutes Restaurant, which at the time was a gold plate award winning restaurant um, under Francois Morvan, shout out. Um, yeah, I guess I, it was a long, from being at that sort of level of money that I took for granted, and then going into an adult apprenticeship, it was, I really just clawed my way up as fast as I humanly could to get as far as I could. Um, I guess it was, yeah, I just strived. I strived hard. What were some of the real key sort of people and venues that you worked through, uh, worked with while you were sort of building your career as a chef? Uh, Richard Burns is always in the back of my head. I started at Three Oceans Winery with him. Uh, we were, we're a humble sort of winery cafe there and I, I sort of cut my teeth and got my nuts and bolts there and moved on quite quickly. Um, flutes was high pressure. I was running the pass as a first year apprentice at that stage. I'd only been in the game for a year and a half. Um, flute, flutes was high pressure. We were doing 200 for lunch and then weddings on the weekend as well. Um, but he had faith in me and just threw me in the deep end. And I mean, duck on water. I don't know how much of the duck above the water was there, but the, the legs were paddling underneath. Um, but I didn't drown, okay? I'm still here, I know. Um, so definitely shout outs to Francois Morvan. Um, then after qualifying, um, I went to a place called Brookwood that I spent a lot of time at. Brookwood was, is a winery, is still a winery. Um, but we did tapas, um, a chef of mine, Avon, who worked under Russell Blakey. We did a lot of tapas and charcuterie sort of stuff, which got me to hone in a little bit more on that. Um, and then at that point, I was living in a farmhouse on a winery which had no power bills and an electric stovetop. So I had juice and tonkotsu broths and that stovetop just was never turned off. I had pots bubbling away for about two years there, um, just extracurricular, you know, just training myself at home because I wanted to do Japanese. I, I was classically trained in French, but I wanted to learn my Japanese as much as I could. So there was... Yeah, there was always pigs, trotters and stuff bubbling away at home. Um, but Brookwood were really good. They let, us, they let us run with it. They gave us a bit of technology. That's where I stepped into sous vide and um, a bit more of technique uh, level cooking. And after a few years of that, I, I was going walking with my dog. I lived in Quarum up 
right next to Howard Park with beautiful bushes and stuff around. So I started playing around with flowers and learning about my flowers from the Department of Agriculture as to what's legal, what's not legal, what's edible, what I'm allowed to do with it as far as um, giving it to people commercially, whereas in it's a gift on the plate. But um, that's where I really started learning about foraging. And it was through my apprenticeship, I have to shout out Amanda Smith that um, everybody in the game over here knows Amanda Smith. She's the best lecturer out there at Margaret River TAFE. Um, and she got in one day, she got in Paul Yoda Isco, um, he may or may not have heard of. I personally believe he's one of the best chefs in Australia. Um, we're talking Dom, we're talking Pujo, we're talking Noma, a long time at um, Viedemond, but also um, a lot of time as one of the senior chefs at Amuse, which is an institution over here. So he came in one day and gave us a run on what's around the area as far as native things are concerned and um, got us all to put up a dish and I pulled out the best thing I possibly could and kind of impressed him a bit. And a year later just called him and sort of said, look, I'm only working three days a week. Um, do you have much going on with you? And he said, look, actually I've I, I don't really have any chefs at the moment. I'd, I'd love you to spend some time over here and I can teach you some stuff. And that that turned into a three-month stage um, and turned into the next three and a half years of my life after that stage. So a lot of people in Australia don't even know what a stage is, let alone can understand why someone would work for three months as a stage. Um, but I still had enough money left to support myself minimally as an income. and. If you know anything about Fervor and Paul and Yoda is we're traveling every week. So, you know, we're always on the road. It is a lot of hours, but we're always on the road. So your accommodation's sorted, your food and your drinks sorted. So it, uh, there wasn't much income needed for me to be able to support that, that stage status. Um, and then I guess that next three and a half years is what I always like to call my second apprenticeship. Um, there was nothing but everything was native apart from dairy, eggs, flour, onions and carrots for stock. I um, mean, everything, everything was native apart from that, that raw staples. So that, that's where my whole game completely changed. What did you learn about native ingredients during that time? It's the versatility, but also the, what's toxic, you know, what's bad, what's good, what needs to be treated in a particular way. I mean, Paul spent a lot of time on my Noma, so I really learned the Scandinavian way of cooking in that we just cook in water and then let the product shine. If we pickle something, we're pickling. We can only get native radishes, the yolks, the Ravensworth radish once a year, but we get 10 kilos of it from the ladies. We always get it from the ladies um, who forage it for us and we'll have yolk all year because we'll pickle it in nothing but white vinegar and water. No, no cloves and bay leaves and stuff, do you know, because I just want it to taste like yolk. Um, so I learned a lot about pairing back, a lot about letting ingredients shine and not so much having to throw different flavours at things just to make to use them as a vessel for flavour, but actually letting that ingredient be the flavour on the dish. And what a, what a big one was that I really learned was balancing on the dish. Um, native ingredients are so interesting that they're either salty or astringent or or bitter or they're really really sour um it's not like you've got sweet and umami and stuff you've got actually all these 
what a lot of people would say are negative attributes, but when you've balanced them all on the plate, something salty makes something bitter sweet, and then you've got something sour on the other side, and it's actually using the elements on the plate themselves to season the dish and balance it rather than balancing each individual component. And that was that was a mind blow for me, and it's changed my whole ethos and my whole the whole way I cook um, in the future since then. You mentioned your fascination with Japanese um, techniques and, and cuisine. Tell us about Fleur Restaurant and how it came about. It, it ended up winning a Best New Restaurant and Restaurant of the Year and a lot of accolades. Um, tell us a bit about the, the restaurant. Well, another, I mean, just jump back, but also jump forward is it's the Japanese techniques is what I also took from Yoda was ferments. I mean, he had, he had the, the Noma Book of Ferments before. Um, the Noma Book of Ferments was a thing. So I, I, got, I was very, very lucky to learn a lot about ferments, okay? So um, I have so many misos and soys and shoyus and garams that just uh, I'd sit here for hours just talking about the ferments alone, Huck. Um, but it's hard to... I did three and a half years of learning bits and pieces in the start and the end and the middle and it was when I finally left and moved to Perth for my family that I started doing ferments from the beginning to the end myself and really, really found my groove with that and I guess that's where that's where I, I'm valuable and I was, I was found as a chef, I guess, by Fleur, you could say, um, was to get, give that magic element which is the native and the ferment. So, I mean, you, ferments are interesting enough. They're new flavors you're developing anyway, but then add natives to that and you've got natives and ferments and then put a bit of Japanese at it and you're actually doing things, which is very rare, Huck. You're actually doing things that have never been done before. I mean, I remember in my 20s, a few too many drinks deep, coming up with some crazy dish at home and then going, wow, look at this, I bet no one else has done that, and then Googling the ingredients and seeing it's been done 20 or 30 times. You know, It's actually a very rare thing, and I've been able to achieve that um, in the last few years is to do things that have never been done before. Can you give us an example or two of a dish that you had on the menu at Fleur that sort of exemplified what you were doing there? 100%. I mean, West Australian native marin with a lemon myrtle fresh lemon myrtle and split pea six-month miso. But then in a normal dashi broth, like a, a nice dashi broth or a fermented tomato dashi broth, and then a Jerusalem crumb from Jerusalem artichoke waste. Um, do you know, it's, it's, you've got a miso broth essentially, but that miso broth is flavoured with fermented lemon myrtle leaves also, and then marin that's come from... Western Australia, it's endemic to nowhere else in the world. It's that, that type of shellfish. Um, so I know that hasn't been done. Unless somebody's got all of that gear in and taken it to Japan and then spent six months making that miso. Um, fairly, I'm fairly confident, I have to say, Huck, let's not say no, it's never been done. But, um, yeah. Tell us about Old Young's uh, kitchen. Obviously, it's a distillery as well. How did that job come about? And tell us a bit about it. First and foremost, it's, a, it's another further thing. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the Six Seasons Gin. Um, so the Six Seasons Gin is one of our gins that's got desert lime in there, it's got lemon myrtle, it's got a little bit of gelatin wax in there, but sea celery. But that was curated with um, Yoda and Dale Tilbrook, our lo local elder, Auntie Dale, shout out. Um, and they came over here and they 
without me, obviously, they came and curated that gin, and that's always been one of the feature gins that's on the menu now. Um, but we'd use that as our welcome drink. So every week I came up to see my partner when my child was being born. I came up from the southwest and saw her, and I'd have to pop through and grab a couple of cases of gin just to keep the welcome drinks party going. Um, so then just at the serendipitous right time, um, James Young, our founder, he, he called me at the right time in the right place when I was sort of ready to get out of the city and start focusing on family and um, having a tree change, which I only just heard is even a thing. <laughs> but having a tree change and getting away from so many nights and sort of working on hospitality 2.0, if you will, um, uh, where everyone's happy, family, um, getting away from all those old negative things we don't even like to talk about but should talk about. Um, yeah, I was approached by James Young to take on the exec chef role working with Old Young's amazing gins and vodkas here in the Swan Valley. So obviously with my partner um, being the food ambassador for the whole region, I never saw myself making it out here because there's never been a huge reputation for incredible food in the Swan Valley. It's always been a lot of taste, you know, charcuterie boards, uh, plowman's boards, if you will, um, pizzas and palmies. So, yeah, I gave it a crack and I jumped in and look, a year down the track, I'm amazed that I still haven't been watered down and the punters are coming in and they're being blown away with all these native and ferment and international flavours. Well, give us a sense of what you're doing there and the connection that you've got with the local producers. What's um, some food dishes that you can tell us about and the connections that you're making? Well, the scallop crudo, I guess. I mean, we've got a milk kefir down. My partner makes milk kefir at home. I, I originally did about four years ago, but she took that over. My son has that every day. Um, we've got native lemongrass oil. Um, the native lemongrass I purchased from some of the mob that I met at Twin Lakes, uh, the Nyo Nyo mob, shout out, um, up north on the Dampier Peninsula. Um, but I also grow my own native lemongrass, so I use two strains. Um, Mark from Tuckerbush, there's a company over here called Tuckerbush. He has an indigenous partner. I got Mark in to curate the gardens when we were building this restaurant. So I have a lot of my aromats growing in the garden here. Obviously, they're still, they're still not quite flourishing yet because we haven't gone through a full four seasons or six seasons if you to go by the Noongar calendar. But uh, I've got lots growing at home because it's my passion. So I've got enough between home and here and then Literally a stone's throw away, I'd say 75 metres if you can throw a stone that far. I have Marlon Up Galleries and that's Annie Dale Tilbrook. So she's a, she's a traditional owner and an elder and she, I guess, is a middleman in a way that my bush tomatoes come directly from the ladies in South Australia. They harvest when they're ready to be harvested and send them to Dale. Um, Dale harvests and is in connection with other mobs who harvest and send to Dale. So anybody else, I mean, I'm very lucky in that I get first pick, I'll get something that's not been on the shelf for three years, uh, like a lot of other major suppliers. I mean, everybody's sprouting all this stuff and they've got all this gear, but it's it's dead, it's trash. It's been sitting there for three years and it's um, had a 300% markup put on it and that markup's not going, that markup's not going back to the ladies. <laughs> um, so I'm, I, I take a lot of pride and passion in knowing that I'm getting the money 
right back into the hands that are growing the plants, do you know what I mean? Right back into the land where it's coming from. Um, it'd be easy for me to pay a lot more and get it from one of the big suppliers, but I do go out of my way and it takes me a little bit more effort and a lot more time. Um, but I won't, I won't apologize for that and I won't change that ever. You mentioned Annie Dale a few times. Tell, tell, tell us a bit about her and the, and the relationship that you have. Uh, well, Dale watched my partner grow up as a kid in the Swan Valley, um, but I never met Dale until I started working with Paul at uh, Fervor. And I guess it's just extended family now. She know, I know her granddaughters. Um, she knows my son. She's known my partner from when she was knee-high to a grasshopper, for lack of a better euphemism. Um, that, and that's what I say, it takes more time. If I, if I go and load up on some stuff, I'm down there for hours because we're just talking about culture, I'm talking about artwork, she's got a gallery. I just, I can't, I can't get out there. It's like when I go, rest in peace, go and visit my grandparents. You know, you had going for a five-minute five cup of tea, but it's a, it's a three-hour yarn. And then you get out to the car and it's another 15, 20 minutes yarning of the car. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's one of, it's, it's like family. Yeah. It's perfect. It's just like family. As you mentioned, Old Young's is a distillery with um, gin and, and vodka in the Swan Valley. Does it speak to you in regards to the menu? Is it influence, does it influence your dish creation? Is there, um, is there matchings? How do you work together? Well, we started, I was here July last year and we weren't open until November, James. Young, our founder, he gave us, or he gave myself, I was the first one I brought as the exec chef, um, a bottle of each of the gins to practice um, cooking with. I'll be honest with you, apart from our vodka sugo, I don't actually have any gin in any of my cooking at all, Huck. Um, I've got access to all of these amazing native and non-native and European botanicals that I use in my cooking, so the food speaks with the gin. Um, apart from a Gravlax or something like that, I, I almost feel it's lazy to just and wasteful to just pour liquor at food, where instead I can go and get the spent botanicals from the distillery behind me, which I'm lucky enough to have, and I use those to smoke a risotto. Um, the spent botanicals go into a crumb that's served with a berry dish. So the berry dish in itself is a perfect example. The spent botanicals are grind up and dry. They go into flavour a crumb. There's so much flavour left in it, okay? Um, then an old choir recipe, it's a frozen meringue that goes down and gets burnt on the plate. Um, and some blueberries that I pickled with juniper, Tuscan juniper, because we're one of the, well, we are the only distillery in Australia that uses actual Tuscan juniper because our founder, uh, he went over to Europe and just haggled and haggled and haggled until he could get some of the allocation that the big boys, the beef eaters, the tankerays, they've all got their hands all over it, okay? So we're the only, only people who use it. So I pickled those blueberries in nothing but white vinegar, water, and Tuscan juniper. But blueberries and strawberries, berries in general themselves are probably one of the oldest pairings for gin known. So, yeah, finish that with a little bit of berry sorbet and go over the top with some lemon myrtle, some fresh dried lemon myrtle from my partner's on the other side of the river, just in the valley from my partner's mum's house. Um, and all of those things, cut Tuscan junipers in all of our gins, you know, um, the lemon myrtles in two of our gins. Um, but then also just using things that I know pair. 
and then wherever I can. So the risotto that I smoke, that's a vegan dish, I smoke it with the botanicals. The botanicals are used in that dish in the spent botanical crumb, but they're also used to brine our swordfish um, on another one of our crudo dishes just to flavour the brine. Um, I, I try and use it as a challenge to use any botanicals in any form, spent or fresh, um, to, ma to make the the booze thing because first and foremost we're a booze company um, we're a brand driven company that's about booze because um, the booze is so amazing and I like I like to take that as a challenge and to create dishes that are as good as the booze that we're serving you mentioned that the region is sort of renowned for charcuterie boards and cheese boards and um, not so much sort of what you're doing take us through the experience what, what, what can people expect if they come through the doors there for for lunch I mean, I've tried to keep the demographic open, but I've used technique where I can use technique. Um, well, I've used technique across the board, but I've tried to keep it accessible, okay? So you can come in and as an a la carte patron and get some olives and sourdough. Uh, you can get some hamon croquettes in a vodka sugo with some six-month manchego. But I mean, those themselves, I'm using hamon, I'm using uh san Mazzano pomodoro tomatoes and a six-month manchego not a three-month manchego so still that's a simple thing but i'm still using the best that i can use to get that out there um and then you can finish with a beef shoulder with an anise myrtle carrot puree some pepper cauliflower and a jus um, or you can come in and say look just feed me and you get the tasting menu and if you come in today you'd be getting warm olives um, they're from the south so I've got those olives uh, we used to use them in all the restaurants down south and a lot of the big boys use them in the restaurants up here um, without saying any names but definitely a lot of the big restaurants um, but the difference is I use the olive oil that's actually pressed from those olives to marinate the olives in um, instead of using some cheaper oil to do that it cost me a little bit more but I think it's worth it um, so if you came in and let me feed you today I'd be giving you olives and spent sour sourdough. So the spent grains from Blaster Brewing's brewing process, I use their spent grain waste to uh, make a sourdough and then a shio koji butter. So a lot of people do shio koji, but it is a fantastic product, but I do actually make that in-house and then flavor the butter with it. Um, I guess that's where you talk about compromise is I know that I don't have the, the room or the time with the covers that we're doing here. I can't make butter here. I'd love to make butter here. I, 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 it's one of my passions, but I can't make butter here. But I use unsalted, uncultured, plain, plain, plain butter. But then the shio koji that I ferment for five weeks rather than the normal Japanese one week, um, the butter's just a vessel for all that flavor. And it's essentially now a cultured butter with nuttiness, saltiness, sweetness, and a buttload of umami, all right? Um, so I guess that's where I say I use technique where I can and then I just play my cards safe. So you'd get your, your, your sourdough and your olives, then you'd step into a bit of a seafood-orientated dish with some scallops, um, fermented green mangoes, a lacto-fermented lacto green mango, um, milk kefir, fermented in-house as well, and a boise boudron of native lemongrass, uh, pepperberry wattle seed, fermented paste, and um, some Geraldton wax vinegar. So that, I mean, <laughs> to read it out, I mean, it's, it's very simple on the menu. I try to keep the menu quite accessible because if I tell you that on the menu, nobody knows what I'm talking about. But it's just, 
I guess to tell you that you get some and you get some a swordfish dish with it. Then you get a kangaroo tartare with emu egg yolk and crocodile garum. So you're getting <laughs> you're getting both of our, our national animals and you're getting a crocodile garum on the side with some yesterday's bread. Shout outs Joe Barrett uh, cracker on the side um, with with some crocodile chorizo and a black garlic aioli dusted with wild rosella powder. Um, then you'll go into some mains and perhaps a dessert. So I won't get too far into that one. Um, so I guess that's where I say is um, I, I was a bit apprehensive as to how this would all go. Um, it does sound like, I mean, I'll read this one out to you. Gnocchi, pumpkin, kelp, coconut, saltbush, grana padana. So that's Italian, right? But it's with a wakame puree and coconut milk and grana padana and it's garnished with saltbush. And the side, if you were to choose it, that comes with that is steamed greens, uh, which is your choice some or your kangkong with macadamia and a black bean exo. So, so, so I'm just really, really lucky and touch wood, I can keep rolling with it, but there is zero pigeonholing whatsoever. I couldn't even tell you what the cuisine is here. I, I, know, I know a lot of people will jump to say modern Australian, but that's something I don't like to have come out of my mouth. It's just yum, yummy food and I'm lucky. So I, I, I can use all these different cuisines. I'm not pigeonholed to only native, but I'm not pigeonholed to Japanese and just doing a ferment driven menu. I just put out whatever I want, which is really rare these days. You're exploring and celebrating native and local ingredients and really putting your voice uh, on the plate. What, what do you love about what you do? Just cooking in itself to me so many things. I mean, first and foremost, it's a career, okay? It, it puts puts money on the table. It keeps my kid fed um, and keeps my wife from leaving me. Um, but beyond that, it's a creative outlet. And I found this out during COVID when when the first big COVID lockdown happened is I was cooking so much. I was organizing my dry store like a madman into international regions and and but pastry and all of this sort of stuff. I was organizing my pantry like it was a dry store at work because cooking's a coping mechanism as well at times. Um, it's a love and a passion and a hobby. It's all those things at once, but the real nuts and bolts, I guess I'd say it's, it's feeding my family. It's a bare necessity. But at the same time, on a whole broader perspective, feeding your whole extended family, it's celebration. It's bringing loved ones together. And on a really raw level, it's... It's just the basics of love and family and relation and going full circle. I was instilled with that, with what we were talking about at the start of the conversation. Um, it's all I've ever known is that, that level of dining, I guess, and, and family celebration. Well, Rowan, congratulations on what you're creating in, over there in WA. It's an honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks so much, Chuck. I really appreciate it, huh? This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.